Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Lore Watch, a roundtable freeform discussion about lore in the games of Blizzard Entertainment. I'm your host, Joe Perez, one of several lore-focused folks from Blizzard Watch, and I've got my stupendous co-host with me today, Matt Rossi. How are you doing today, Rossi? I'm fine. And that is fine. Uh, we do have a bunch of questions that we're going to be going through today. No uh, no special interviews or anything like that. Uh, if you didn't check it out already, we did interview Madeline Rowe last week. Uh, be sure to make uh, make some time to listen to it. It was very good, very insightful. Uh, does have some spoilers for the Shadows Rising book, but well worth it. Uh, if you have questions for the podcast otherwise, or the other podcast, or even for the queue, you can send them in to us. We do have several Discord channels set aside specifically for these, uh, some for the patrons, some for non-patrons, and then if you don't like Discord, you can always send us an email at podcast at blizzardwatch.com. Just specify what show it's for. Most of our questions today did actually come from Discord, so we'll see how this goes. Uh, our first question today comes from Tetsemi. Question for Lorewatch. From the group interview with WatcherDev, the Jailer is confirmed to be the final boss in Shadowlands, with a power level which exceeds that of the Titans. If this is indeed true, what's the power ranking in the Warcraft universe? Where do Titans fight in the pecking order compared to things like Elun, who is not unique to Azeroth, apparently? Question mark. What ab what's above a Titan, besides the aforementioned character above? I don't know. Where would you? How would you rank the cosmic pecking order, so to speak? I wouldn't. I feel like that's you, you're trying to make yourself. Things don't fit easily into neat boxes. This isn't Pokemon, uh, unless you know you're working for Odin. I, I just it's he's really powerful. That's all I took out of that. Calling him Titan Plus Plus just means he's more powerful than anything we've seen before. That could just be because, you know, he's the ruler of an entire plane of existence. I mean, the Maw is a separate plane of existence, and he runs it, the whole place. 
I don't know what where that puts him. I don't know what that means. I mean, it feels pretty obvious that beings like the Void Lords that run like entire planes of existence tend to be really, really powerful. But I don't have a, I don't have a scorecard, and I wouldn't worry about it too much. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty difficult question to sort of of pin down, right? Because there are a lot of factors on top of just what you would consider like a hierarchy, because there isn't really a static hierarchy. Don't forget when we meet the Titans, when we met them in, you know, Legion, they were super depowered. They had been tortured for an extended period of time. A lot of their power had been stripped away to the point where we had to help them take down Argus and then use Argus to pull back Sargeras because they couldn't do it themselves. So the statement could also be, I don't want to say untruthful, but it could have uh, viewpoint bias, right? At what point is the Jailer considered more powerful than the Titans? Is it at the current point? Because, yeah, I'd believe that. I'd also believe that there's several of us that are probably more powerful than they are in their current state. Um, but as Matt pointed out, it doesn't necessarily matter. Um, we're also looking at it from a perspective of like in relation to everything else, but we're also going to potentially be fighting the jailer on his home turf. Think about how many things in Warcraft become way more dangerous when you are on their home turf. Let's even look at non-cosmic level stuff. Let's look at Sylvanas when she was alive, when she was just a ranger general, she was super deadly if you fought on her home turf, she knew that land like the back of her hand. Her her people knew that land. They could organize, orchestrate, and do all manner of things to use that to their advantage to overcome superior foes. It's also something we see in the real world. You have that home field advantage. You know all the tricks and, and all the little things of what you are defending or what you are where you're fighting. You're going to have a slight advantage regardless of your power level. So it, it's it's an interesting statement and it's one that you can get excited about because yes, the jailer is going to be a big bad, but it's relative. It's very very much relative, and we don't have context right now, really. Ultimately, uh, if that's to be said, if everything was flowing right in the Shadowlands, does that mean every regional overlord or whatever whatever the head of each of those regions is called is more powerful than all the Titans? Maybe. Who knows? So, I, I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't dwell on it. What do you? What else do you think? Well, like one of the things you have to think about when you're thinking about this, uh, one of the things you have to talk about isn't just the fact that. I don't know how to explain this. <sighs> oh, yeah, I'm having a really hard time. Um, basically, when you're talking about these beings and you're talking about, you know, their power level and so forth, there's... No, I'm really not... Man, I'm not doing great today on this subject. Let me put it to you in simplest terms. Godzilla is king of the monsters. But Ghidorah is more powerful than Godzilla, even though Godzilla always wins the fights. Does that make sense? Like, the the Jailer's power level is useful for us because we're going to be fighting him. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not it's not as simple as, well, you know, like I said before, they're not Pokemon. You don't always have, like, well, he's fire type, so he's going to, you know, he's death type, so he's always going to lose against light type. That's not, you know... 
that's not what we're dealing with. There's a lot of going on when you when you do the Maw intro experience. There's stuff going on, stuff that's said that like is like, whoa, what do you mean by that? What's that mean? Stuff we've never heard of before, never seen before. Uh, the definite sense is being given that there's an entire level of reality that we have no knowledge of. And the Titans are incredibly powerful, but the Titans are like beings. Like they, they lived in our, in our universe. Yeah. yeah, they lived in our universe. They were like planet sized. Like I'm going to try a Marvel Comics analogy here. Galactus is enormously enormously powerful. He eats planets. He is, however, a being. He was born in the Big Bang. He exists inside the Marvel universe. He is not a personification being, like you know eternity and death are in that setting and then there's the celestials who have never been explained mm -hmm. marvel celestials we don't know what they are we don't know where they're from it's never been explained where they come from and they've never been pitted against galactus we don't know if they're more or less powerful than he is they're they're a, a cosmic order of beings but they're a different kind of cosmic order of being galactus comes along and he eats your planet that's what he does. He doesn't come along inside. I'm going to tamper with your planet so that, you know, this species could possibly turn into gods. Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? What, you know, and, and, you know, in Marvel, mutants come from the Celestials tampering. So do inhumans, ultimately, although the humans then were tampered with further by the Kree. But there's so every superhuman being in the Marvel Universe comes from the Celestials monkeying around the DNA of a species. And this includes other worlds that have other species on them. The Celestials have been doing this forever. But the Celestials are not more powerful than, say, Eternity, who is literally the universe. And there's other beings on levels in between them, like the in-betweener, the living tribunal. There's, there's a lot of stuff going around. That's what we're dealing with here. Just because the, 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 the Jailer and the Titans aren't on the same level of existence. For all of their enormous power, the Titans are beings. They exist in our world. The Jailer does not... We can't tell right now if the Jailer is even like that. So we have a lot to learn yet before we can make any real decisions on, you know, like filling out the dance card, so to speak, with who's more powerful, who goes where. Yeah, and again, a lot of things, you have to take a lot of the statements with a grain of salt, too. Uh, and I think the idea of us going to another plane of existence is is sort of key here, like Matt's pointing out. We don't know the rules there. We don't know what happens there. And that's part of the journey of the entire expansion for Shadowlands, right? We're figuring out how things work as we go along. Uh, it's similar to, I mean, I hate to say it like this, but... It's a more cosmic scale version of what we did in Battle for Azeroth. Either faction uh, had to learn the rules of wherever the islands that they were the, in faction they were working with. And it was something that they hadn't interacted with before and never dealt with before, whether it was the Kaltiran Admir Admiralty uh, and sort of how that whole power structure works, or whether it was dealing with the Azandalari and learning how that works. We didn't know what we were getting into, and we spent an entire expansion for the most part, figuring that out and navigating that and getting to where we needed to go with it. This is going to be a lot of the same thing with Shadowlands. We don't know what we're doing 
yet. We don't know the rules of this place. Uh, as far as like even us as players, we don't know yet. Even outside of the game with meta knowledge, we have no idea. We know that time flows differently. We know that there's very powerful things that we can bind our souls to. And really, that's about it. it. So like, there's not a whole lot to go on. So again, I wouldn't dwell too much on the statement that the Jailer is uh, a power level that exceeds even that of the Titans, because we don't have context yet. We'll get it as the expansion uh, hits and moves forward. We'll probably have a better idea, and maybe then we could revisit this and and talk a little bit more about it. But I think that's I think it's about all we can really say about it for now. Our next question comes from Jack Jack. Uh, Lore Watch question speculation invitation. Since you and I believe that Nazoth isn't dead and his previous scheming shows that he wins even when he loses and also that he was working towards the Hour of Twilight, what if that's the next post-Shadowrun's expansion? With the time shenanigans and Shadowlands, Azeroth would be without her champion for who knows how long. Could this bring Cataclysm 2.0? Alright, what do you think? Do you think we'll get another... Do we think we'll have a Nazoth-created type of cataclysm? Maybe, but it's not going to have anything to do with time dilation. Okay. What do you mean? Expand. Oh, I'm trying to eat this cookie. Okay. <laughs> um, so far that I've seen, time shenanigans in the Maw work the opposite way to what everyone's assuming. The You can go... Seconds later, you can you can be standing in Azeroth and go into Azeroth seconds after someone else does. And they've been there for weeks or longer than you haven't. You can follow in people who've been taken to the Morgan so well less than an hour before you, you go in. They were there for literally months. They've experienced months of time while you you know, in the in the like half an hour to an hour it took you to follow them. So, right now, if you go, let's assume you go into the Maw, you, you end up getting out of the Maw and going to the rest of, going to Orbos, and then traveling to the rest of the Shadowlands, going from 50 to 60, however long it takes you to go to those four places and, you know, meet the various covenants and eventually decide on a covenant and all that stuff, say it takes you months. Literally, hours will have only passed in Azeroth. And I can't be certain about that because that's only the Maw that I'm sure that that happened based on quotes by the characters when you do the intro experience. Yeah, it's the only and thing we've mind, had confirmed so far. Keep in mind, that's the that's not yet released in the game yet. None of this has gone live yet. They can change it at any time. They have in the past changed whole things. They've taken out like stories. They've altered characters' relationships. They've straight up said that they they you know they they've had stuff in in betas and alphas before, where characters knew each other, and they've taken that out. Ramath betrayed us during the Cataclysm in the Cataclysm beta. He was working for the for Deathwing, and then they just took it out. Yep. So we ended up staying loyal. So stuff can change, but as of right now. The time thing seems to be the other way around. So instead of the champions being gone for who knows how long, we could be gone for years in our time, and it could be like a couple of weeks. And, and, and part of that makes sense, right? Like, if you talk about, like, we, we were talking about before, like, the ancients going through, like, Ardenweld and how 
long they took to come back and the Loa and things like that. It, it's entirely possible that other realms are like that too, right? And then, like Matt's pointing out, we don't know yet. Uh, yeah, but so assuming that that's true, at least in terms of the Maw, we could be at this for a long time and yet not much time will have passed back on Azeroth. So I don't think we're going to go in, do Shadowlands, and it's going to be five years later when we come out. I think, if anything, it's a clever way to do what they've always kind of done anyway, which was, like, for instance, if you remember, when we when you went to do uh, Burning Crusade, time did pass back on Azeroth, but not as much time as is actually passed. Mm -hmm. If you go back to the first WoW expansion... If you go back to like original, what we now call WoW Classic, you go back to, to original vanilla WoW, it has not been 16 years in-game since that period of time. Time has not passed as quickly in-game as it actually has in the world. So there's always been a bit of, I, I want to say, elasticity built into World of Warcraft's timeline. Time has passed, but not as much time has actually passed as has passed out here. For that matter, we, we, when you play original Warcraft, you, you get that the original cinematic that they made. Four years have passed, but it hadn't actually been four years. Like it was four. It, it, it's four years more or less since the Legion defeat. Because if you played Warcraft three, you played it in two thousand. But it's like. Since then, it has been real rubbery. It's not been 20 years since Warcraft 3. To, you know, it's been 20 years since Warcraft 3 in the real world, but not in game world. So time has always been a little rubbery, and they're kind of giving themselves license here to do all of this crazy stuff in Shadowlands, and then you just come out, and it's been like a month. And stuff hasn't advanced very far. That's one possibility. I don't know if that's what they're going to do. I have literally no idea how this is going to work out. He, he didn't commit to any specific definition. He just said that time works differently when, when Ian originally gave the interview. You, you can't sit here and think, okay, I know exactly what's going on. We're going to have all this time pass. We're not going to be there. Stuff's going to happen. We don't know that that's what's going to happen. And I feel like you have to be paying attention to that, especially as, as more stuff is released, as they go into the beta as stuff is more solidified, because you get to a certain point where it's very hard to change things. Like, right now, they're still in a good place to change anything they want to. Like, they could pull something out right now. There's nothing stopping them. The more people, the closer we get to release, the more stuff that's been tested, the harder it is to make those changes. So, I really want to put that, you know, in terms of what the next expansion is going to be, I, I couldn't tell you. Uh, I do know that one thing was said. Uh, I remember this this quote, and I, I can't remember exactly where it's from, but in one of the interviews, they said the Void Lords had noticed the fall of the Old Gods. So it's quite possible the next expansion is going to involve the Void Lords in some way. It's at yeah. least they they have at least been mentioned. Yeah, and I, and I agree with everything that Matt just said. The I, I think that whatever happens or whatever plan Nazoth has we're probably not going to see it for a while. Uh, and I don't think it's going to be like everybody's been been latching on to where time's going to be further moved along outside of the Maw. In fact, I think it might be a way of almost retrofitting some of the other things 
that we were given back in Legion that never, never really made sense. And this is something I'll come back to. I think it's more likely that we're going to see exactly what was happening in that comic with Anduin getting on the Exodar and going, saying we're going to Argus. Maybe it wasn't the first time we were going to Argus. If you look at it, he was old, not, not, like just older, not just with a beard. He had gray hair mixed in with his blonde. He was like an older person. Well, if time moves that much quicker in the mall and we know that he got pulled into the mall again from when we talked about this a couple weeks ago and when you interact with them, it's been weeks for him or months or whatever the case is. If that's the case, who knows how long actual time passes for him inside of there that when we come out maybe we start getting some of those pieces falling into place maybe this ties in with now there's more work to do maybe we get an idea of what has to happen like yes we defeated the old gods yes we fixed death but this triggered this and now we have an actual idea of it because we were able to see from a different perspective from a different plane of existence and now we got to go deal with some other things Uh, and i have some ideas that are completely unsubstantiated and have no founding in anything that I've seen so far. But who knows if we go back to Argus, not just for uh, any particular reason, but maybe we go back to break Sargeras out and push him against the Void Lords. Who knows? Uh, but I think we'll start to see little bits of that more than we would see anything of Nazoth's exact plan after Shadowlands is done. Our next question comes from Godzilla, appropriate from our earlier conversation. Lorewatch, hey Matt and Joe, question about our favorite fan base, Breaking Banshee. So after reading Shadows Rising, and there's some spoilers in here, and I'll probably put a spoiler warning at the beginning of this episode anyway. Uh, in the epilogue, as Sylvanas crossover, crosses over into the Maw, Madeline wrote this passage that got me thinking. The unjust ladder of their lives must be dismantled, not rung by rung, but all at once. All of it. She had been pl- uh, the plaything of the self-righteous cosmos long enough. At first glance, I was like, Nihilus Sylvanas. Awesome. Wow. But then I remembered what nihilism really was. Thank you, DC's Owlman, for reminding me. So I started to think that perhaps is Sylvanas actually a cosmic-level anarchist? Has she become so bitter and hateful of her current, current reality that she's going to burn down the structure of the cosmos itself to, in her mind, free them all? Just some thoughts as we try to put together a method to the madness of Sylvanas, if you will. I I put this here because I kind of want to hear you you rant a little bit about it and uh, see if you have any thoughts on it. Because I we get a lot of people justifying Sylvanas' actions or trying to, and I'm I'm always weirded out by it a little bit just because I don't think it's something we have to do. But in the context of this question, what do you think, Matt? I think... I mean, it's there's always an understandable impulse. People identify with characters. They uh, the story characters in the story they they find something in them that they like or they identify with. I for a long time I really identified with Garage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know what it's like to have a distant father that you have a terrible or absent relationship with. To believe something strongly about that one for a long time to try and revisit it later in your life and try and make it part of your own life to try and justify it. Um, my father and I had, I knew my father. I didn't like just hear stories about him. So I didn't have Garrosh's desperate need for validation from him. 
but I, I could relate to him. I understood how that feels. <clears throat> and I probably cut him more slack than the story really warranted. Like, I remember when I finally realized, no, this this is not a guy who's going to have a heroic end. And that's, like, oddly enough, uh, I think Taron Gregory was talking about it this week. Um, there's the, the cinematic that they put out for Siege of Orgrimmar with Garrosh. They, they pulled the heart out of the chamber that the, the Titanforged had put it in. And he goes, it thirsts, bring it to the well. And you see that whole interaction with Taron Zhu. And Taron Zhu had been such a jack, just utter, utter jerk, the entire expansion, that it was hard to root for either of them. Like, you knew Terran Zoo was doing the right thing here. He was trying to stop a horrible thing from happening. But you remember what a jerk he was. And especially if you're an Alliance player, you're like, yeah, hey, look. You said there was no difference between us. So go ahead. Take him. You're so good. You go ahead. But at the same time, you knew Garage was, you know, he, like, at one point, he, you know, Terran Zoo says he fought with, with Torrin and Trolls, and Garage was none like them. And he even says they're no longer part of my horde. And you realize, oh, so now he's a racist, too. And it's just, you, you, you come to points where these characters that you identify with do things, and it's not that the things they do aren't comprehensible. It's not that you can't understand them. It's that it doesn't really matter anymore. It doesn't matter, like, what they believe. You know, it... it Tell yourself whatever you have to to get yourself through. Uh, I think Sylvanas is definitely... I think her point is valid in that, you know, the universe... If, if you find out the universe has an order and that you know what happens after death and that so many people end up in effectively hell, I, I, I can understand wanting to, root, to, just to tear it all down. It's really... We live our lives without any true, real knowledge of what happens after them. I mean, we we think we know. We have religions. We have belief systems. But I'm not going to heaven tomorrow to talk to anybody and then coming back. You know? There's no there's no interchange in that way. And it's, it's interesting to look at a fictional character who is confronted with all the horrors that happened to me in my life are the result of these other beings meddling in my existence. What would that make you feel? How would you act? If you knew, the, you know, especially since I've got this suspicion about the Lich King and the Jailer, that I mean, we might end up talking about further there's, in the show. I'm yeah, sure. there's a question at the end of the end of this specifically about that. Yeah. So, I think that you know, if you're Sylvanas and you're and you're dealt, you you eventually come to the realization that your entire life has been thrown off because somebody monkeyed around with like, the cosmic order of things. You might decide this is, this can't be fixed, and you, you know, I don't know if she's an, a cosmic level anarchist or a nihilist for that matter. I don't know if either is really apl applicable to what she wants to do because I don't actually know what she wants to do. Yeah, and that, she that's says the problem, things like right? you know, yeah, there's things like you know, I, the unjust ladder of life. You know, this is very similar to what if you if you go back and run uh, Black Morass. When the last boss shows up, he says, you know, we must, we must unmake this clockwork universe. Mm -hmm. And it's a very similar idea. This idea, you know, everything has to be destroyed, which is a very nihilistic idea. Even if you're going to try and rebuild stuff afterwards, the idea that you have to just destroy everything to do it, that you can't work with anything that exists, you can't 
try and fix things. You just got to smash it all down and then go from there. That's fairly nihilistic, but it's not the nihilism of literally everything should just die. You know, it, Sargeras believed the exact same thing. Sargeras's entire goal was to destroy everything because that would that would thwart the Void Lords, and then afterwards something new could be made. But he wasn't worrying himself about that. His goal was smash everything. It, it's like literally like, imagine one of those plans was like step one, smash everything. Step two, question mark, question mark, question mark. Step three, profit. That was how Sargeras approached it. And for all I know, that's what Sylvanas is doing. We don't know what Sylvanas' plan is, and we don't know how much of what's going on is Sylvanas' plan versus the Jailer's plan. Yeah, and that's the other problem, too, right? Like, we don't know the nature of their relationship yet. We have only snippets and pieces of information. Uh, but the thing that always got me about this particular... Like, I, I was thinking about this the other day. In regards to Sylvanas, and this is something that you touched on a little bit, you know, it's beyond even just having your eyes open to the fact that hell exists and that people go there. But she has a unique perspective that not a lot of people do, at least in the Warcraft universe. How many people have actually died, crossed over and come back back and actually know what happens on the other side? There's really not any of them. I mean... Our, our resident Loa of death isn't telling us anything. Uh, we haven't talked to Moizala yet, and we have no clue what or if anything he's going to say about it. Uh, I'm going to guess nothing useful. But Sylvanas has, and Bolvar is in a unique position where he can see and probably knows more about it than the rest of us do as well. So what happens if not only do you see some people go to hell, but there is a place for other folks that they can go and be happy that's denied other folks and they have no control over how they're parsed out. What does that do to her? What does that do to somebody? And don't forget, like when she died, when she threw herself from the top of ice crown, she saw nothingness. She saw emptiness. And if that's the first crack in her sort of cosmic view, um, Maybe that's part of it. But you also said something, Matt, that, that made me think about a theme that we're seeing, not just with this, not just with the infinite dragon flight, but Sargeras too. Everything was about burning everything down to the ground to rebuild it, not working within the system. Why? Why can't they move the system? Why can't they change the system? And now we have it where we talk about the machinery of death. This 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 thing that's been viewed as a construct, a cosmic construct, is broken. Is this all part of that? Is this something that they were all trying to do but didn't even realize that they were trying to do it? Is there more to it? Uh, is the dismantling of how everything is ordered necessary? Is that the truth that we can't see as player characters or as characters in the game? So, I don't know. I don't think maybe Sylvanas is a nihilist. I don't think she's an anarchist. I think that currently we don't really know her motivation. In her, yeah, it's not it, it's not anarchy if you think you should be in charge. It's not anarchy if you're the one setting the rules. Yeah, and and Sylvanas very clearly thinks she should be in charge. Yeah. So she, she doesn't want to destroy 
the concept of ruling and leading. She wants to replace the ones that are doing it. And she just happens to be aiming on a more cosmic scale. Yeah, so I mean, who knows? And this is another one that we're going to kind of have to uh, see what happens. Because, again, we only know so much. And we don't know what the chase is going to be. And we might even get a glimpse of it, maybe a little bit, in any pre-expansion event. Like, we, we talked about we know that we're going to be going after Nathanos at some point uh, on the Maris Stead. There is a whole thing there, right? We don't know the meat of it yet we don't know what happens we don't know anything that's said or or uh any quotes from it yet but we might get more information from that that leads us towards a specific direction but i don't know we'll see in the future our next question uh comes from corix uh hi matt and joe during a recent stream i noticed that during the Moizala fight, some of his broadcast text is in a different language. I have not been able to find any information on this and wondered if either of you knew what language he was speaking and what it can mean about his origins. Also, what are your predictions for him in the future? I missed that one. I didn't think I saw that encounter. Did you? I, I went to the... Moizala is the, end boss, the last boss of the other side dungeon. Yes. Um, I have not I've looked at I've looked up his quest text. I've not seen him. I've not done that dungeon. If there's foreign language in it, I don't have an answer to that. I maybe there it maybe it's for another language. I I got you got nothing here. The broadcast text I could find was all in English. Um so yeah, no idea. It could have been for like, you know, there are other language servers. It could have been for that for all I know. Uh, I'd need to know what stream you were talking about before I could give you any further information, unfortunately. But I did look up Muzala in general. I looked up the stuff that's going on with him. Uh, I don't know exactly. This question doesn't really have anything to do with that, though. Like, I mean, we're, you're not asking us about Muzala. His origins, we don't know his origins. We know that he's um, old. We know that he, he was, uh, what, Sand Fury, right? He's one of the Sand Fury gods. Um, he's the the god of death. They called him the the father of sleep. It's another title he has. We don't like. He doesn't seem like they, they, they there definitely does not seem to be a hierarchical relationship between Mazala and One Seventy. They do not appear to be one is older than the other or one is more powerful than the other. They appear to be more akin to rivals. Then they are like you know, Muzala is the big one, and then Wansamdi works for him. Whoever the boss that Wansamdi was talking about, it does not appear to be Muzala. Uh, based on stuff I've seen in game for both of these characters for the next expansion, and keep in mind they're still recording lines for for these characters right now. As in, they just got done talking about a session with Alex Desert recording lines for Wansamdi this week. So they're still doing it, like right. They're still writing stuff. They're still adding stuff in. So keeping that in mind, it appears that something is going on in the other side dungeon where other fi other figures are trammeling on Juan Sandy's grounds, uh, and it appears that Muzala has made an alliance with the jailer. That appears to be what's going on, and he might be making a, a play for Juan Zamdi's 
for lack of a better word, throne for his his dominion, the other side, which is like a subplane, much like Helia had a subplane, and we now know that Helia is working with the the jailer. She's when you go to the maw, she's there, and she's got the new Kyrian as like she's got uh, Mossworn Kyrian as her servants. She's traded up from Valkyr, so that's going on. And we know that, that that he's got other figures. One of the things we're seeing is that the Jailer has been working on this for a while. A long while. He's had a lot of plans in motion. Yeah, and he's got people on his side helping him pull it off. And one of them is, is not Bon Sandy, one of them is Muzala. And there's definitely a confrontation with Muzala. Hakar is also in the other side dungeon. Which Good makes old sense. Uh, so there's stuff going on. We don't know. Like we, we seriously, we have no idea where Muzala's origins are. We we don't know, like why? What is he? Where does he come from? He looks. I keep like I keep thinking this. He looks like a mogu. He kind of does. Yeah, he's got the the brawny, thick upper body look, and it would kind of make sense if he was related to the mogu, since the mogu and the Zandalar worked together for so long and had kind of a alliance of convenience. It, it could make, it's possible that we know that the way the Zandalari work, the, the way that trolls work, Loa are any powerful being. Like once Andy directly tells the night queen when, when he's talking to her at the end of, of the Ardenwheel stuff, he says that he heard her Loa calling him. And that he, he just associates like, she's a Loa to him. Mm-hmm. You know, that to him, to their perspective, any being's a Loa. It could very well be that Muzala was originally some Mogu figure who commanded a group of Sand Fury during their war with the with the Akir. I mean, the, the Mogu didn't like the Akir any more than anybody else did. You know, the Mantid were Akir descendants. The Mogu did not like them. The Mogu did not like any old god servitor beings that they they in fact the the mogu are extremely orderly and it's quite possible that some like powerful mogu warlord or you know somebody on, on the lines of oh bloody heck i can't remember his name but he's he's in he's in seizure orgrimmar he's the big norishen someone on the power level of norishen someone who's like not just a standard mogu but like an actual titan keeper titan forge type might well have taken on that role we don't know. I and it's could entirely possible he's not any way, shape, or form related to Mogu. He just kinda looks like him. But it is interesting to think about, but we really have no idea what, what Muzala's origins are. We don't know any more than we know Buon Sandy's origins. Yeah, I you mean know? I was gonna say I think the only thing we know is that he wasn't widely worshipped outside of the Sand Fury and once that tribe was sort of I don't wanna say decimated because I mean, they lost a lot of the power that they had is that he wasn't as prominent, and we know that he wants to eat Azeroth, because that's one of the text or quest text things or quote text things that you can see from him, where he keeps talking about, if you fail, I will eat all of Azeroth, and he just repeats that over and over and over again. Like he's he's diametrically opposed to Bomsamdi in the fact that like Bomsamdi seems to keep his charges safe. Right. Like that's the idea of the other side for Bomb Somdi is to usher these people in, keep them safe, 
Uh, and we get a little bit of that in Shadows Rising as well, where like he talks about ushering souls of his believers from, you know, whatever the whatever twisted fate awaits them. And Moizala instead consumes them. We know that much, at least. Um, but yeah, going back to the original question, like the broadcast language thing is a little bit hard to pin down because there's it could be just something because, again, this is testing right? It could be that they didn't localize that particular line of text for that person's region that was streaming it, uh, or, you know, North America or whatever the case is. It could simply be another language, like Matt pointed out earlier, of just another region. It could also be an ancient language that we don't know, because as Matt's pointed out, we don't know his origin. We don't know where he came from. We don't know how he became Aloa. Heck, we don't know how Loa necessarily become Loa. We know that they are just incredibly powerful creatures, either they're or entities. They're some cases they're born like the 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 ancients and the the sort of the wild gods, right? We know that they were born from Azeroth. But what about all the other Loas? What about Every one of the Loas that the trolls of all the various tribes worship, we have no idea. Did it just come from a pure belief that they sprung into life? Maybe. But if that's the case, why is Moizala so dangerous? Is it, and we, like Matt pointed out, he's definitely made a deal with the jailer. Uh, he's definitely present. And there's just something that people have been kicking around what they call the Dark Pantheon. Um, I don't know if I really buy into it, but there's all these disenfranchised dark god level uh, entities that are coming to the jailer's beck and call to sort of reorder the cosmos so that they sort of almost like legion of doom style uh where they can be the ones in charge and sort of run the show how they want uh so yeah, it should be pointed out too that mozal is not the only person striking at this time in the other world um yep. i mean the shadowlands the Drust are making a move on Ardenwald, for example. Moizala is helping with that too. There's several. There's several instances in Ardenwald actually, where um, some of the the darters and stuff like that are actually working for Moizala. Yeah, and he's whispering to them and corrupting them. Now, I mean, the Drust are beings who are descended from the Titanforged, who pulled their own souls out of their bodies. Like they they. They turned themselves into construct beings. They sacrificed physical life to become effectively, you know, in their own way, they reverse engineered their existence, much like the Mogu did, except they did it with different construct bodies. They didn't turn their bodies back into stone. They put their souls in new constructs. There's, if Mozala is working with the Drust, it's possible that he's related to them in some way, or that they're descended from him, or something along those lines. We don't really know. We have no idea. We know that beings like the, the Titan Forged can be considered uh, Loa. That they, they can. And for that matter, the Titan Forged were experimenting on Loa in Oldier. Mm -hmm. They were trying to figure out what, you know, if, if the Loa were more or less resistant to the old gods. So there's a lot of stuff going on here that we can't really give you an exact answer on. In terms of Muzala's origins, we got no idea. But I suspect we will find out as we start moving towards content again in Shadowlands. And I feel like a broken record saying it, but as we start dealing with them, I'm fairly confident Bwam Samdi will start filling us in since he seems to really like to tell stories. Our next question comes from Uncertainty Lich. 
Hey, Watchers, I've been thinking about what we can glean of the broader conflict in Shadowlands lately, and I keep coming back to your discussion of Bolvar earlier in the year. We know Bolvar had been marshalling forces since Reawakening and Legion. Is he, perhaps, taking the role of the Jailer of the Damned far beyond what any of us anticipated, and he has been preparing for a showdown against the Jailer the entire time? What do you think of the idea that he was anticipating an attack by someone connected to the Shadowlands, Sylvanas, Bomsamdi, etc., and thus put up only a token resistance to Sylvanas so that an avenue of attack upon the Jailer could be opened? So this goes back to, I think we had, we're having a Twitter conversation yesterday, I think, with Uncertainty Lich. So I'll let you go first, because this, this is a can of worms. <laughs> I don't think that happened at all. I have no idea what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, no, no. Um, okay. I, I suggested some stuff yesterday. And one of the things I suggested was that at the end of this expansion, when we have dealt with the Jailer, assuming we've defeated Sylvanas and you know all the other forces that have been backing the Jailer up and we've stopped the Jailer, then th what's going to happen? The Arbiter comes back, things... The, the order to the, the, you know, the Shadowlands goes back to the way it's supposed to be. Who runs the Maw? You can't leave the Jailer there. You can't go, go, okay, you've been beaten. Now go back to being in charge of the Maw. Very clearly, that's a power base he can't be trusted with. And the Maw has so, to exist in some capacity because... Some, as... We're going to do something with all those souls that are too evil to go anywhere else. Yep. You know, I mean, that's the whole point of the Maw originally is that it's the place... It's the, it's the dump. It's like, okay... We, 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 wanted, we, we want to try and re return as many souls as possible to like existence in some form. Like The anima is the power generated by a soul throughout its life in a way. So using that power to, to run the Shadowlands also purifies those souls of their experiences and allows them to go back to the world of living as new things, essentially. They don't come back with all the memories of the lives they've led before. They come back and they are effectively new beings. It's a kind of like reincarnation by means of purification. You become, you know, when babies are born, the babies are innocent because they're literally purified of their memories. And you see that in Revendreth. When, when Kael'thas is being, is being tortured by the uh, Venthyr, they say things like, really, you know, give, me, give up your anima, release the, 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 you know, your arrogance and, and your, it's a way to purify them. You, you give up your life experiences. The Kyrian do it too. The, when you join the Kyrian, they are really upfront about wanting you to forget your previous life. To become a Kyrian, you're expected to forget everything that made you who you were. You're, all those lessons, all that stuff, that's, that's gone. The being you become when you ascend in the Kyrian is one who has no memory of his previous life. It's very clear that that's a, that's a big part of the Shadowlands. Their idea of how to purify your spirit and return it to the world of living is to take away everything you brought with you when you got there. Yeah, you, you check your baggage. And as a result of that, that's that's where the energy comes from, is that process. But some some beings they can't do it. Well, you know, they're just they're too vile, they're too corrupted, they're too stubborn. They're, you know, and keep in mind that those beings have to be really corrupted. Like Kael'thas is not considered so far gone that he can't be he can't be rehabilitated and sent back or made into a vent there. And that's the other thing. Each of the covenants skims souls. Mm -hmm. 
not everybody goes back. Some people become members of the Covenants and stay forever in their new role. Like, all the members of the Venthyr you're going to run into, except for maybe Sire Donathrius, who might be, like, one of the original beings. And that ties into the whole First Ones thing that we still don't know a lot about. But most beings you run into in a Covenant, like the, the various Kyrian you meet, the various Venthyr you meet, the various uh, Necrolords you meet, the, the Night Fae that you run into in Ardenwald, they're all formerly living beings that chose to stay as part of a covenant and effectively became part of it. And so they're not going back to try the cycle of life and death again. They're going to stay there and be part of that. So you've got spirits that are, that are skimmed off to join into the covenants and become part of that. You've got spirits that are sent back into the world, and that's one of the big mean. The, the big point of Ardenwild is to do that. Ardenwild is all about that. That's why when you got Buon Samdi interacting with the Night, the Night Queen, you definitely get the sense that it's a situation where he has interacted with her before, because ultimately his role is to ferry souls to her, in a manner of speaking, whether or not directly, but it's part of what he does. Yeah, we and know that he says being, as much. Like he talks about ushering souls, right? Like that's that's the, a specific thing. And then you have Helia, who's was clearly given power to effectively do the opposite. To instead of taking those souls to the covenants where they're supposed to go, instead of taking them to to Oribos where they'll be judged by the Arbiter, her Valkyr, who are like I don't want to say mock Kyrian, but like inspired by and similar to the Kyrian, were t- shepherding those spirits back to to serve Odin's purpose for them at first, and then her own, when she broke free from Odin. In either case, those spirits were not being returned to, you know, take up life again. They were being transformed into something else. And that's very much the case with what Odin does. With Odin and his Valkyr, that's exactly what they're doing. They're, they're siphoning off souls before they can get to where they're supposed to go. And they're returning them in these new Stormforge bodies to, to perform a new role. And that's the, like, it was one thing when a few spirits were doing this. Because the, the, the flow of spirits is effectively endless. And so if, if a few don't make it, it doesn't really affect the Shadowlands very much. But when whatever happens to the Arbiter happens and all the souls are going straight to the Maw... Suddenly, it's a it's a it's a disaster. It's a catastrophe, and that because because all that anima, that anima isn't being returned to the cycle, and the spirits aren't starting over. They're they're effectively being used. When you go to the maw, you you find you fight things that are effectively made out of souls, giant robot like monster constructs that are effectively just people souls turned into weapons. And it's all of this entire thing that, that we're seeing happen. All of it is built around this idea that there's a cycle, that there's a way this is supposed to work and that it's not currently working. So once the jailer is defeated, the cycle needs to be put back in place. Somebody has to do what the jailer was supposed to be doing. And that's the thing is we're, we don't know exactly what the Maw's purpose is. Is it literally just meant to keep them there forever or is it supposed to actually serve as part of this whole cyclical process? Like we know that Revendreth is about purifying spirits 
that are like guilty of the sin of pride and getting them to like the place where they can accept, okay, I was wrong. I did do bad things. I, I did need to be stopped. I didn't need to be, you know what I mean? It's like the Reverend Death has a role. Does the maw, is the maw supposed to just serve as a garbage dump or is it supposed to effectively break you down enough that you can be put back into the cycle? That I don't know, but I'm willing to bet that that's one of the things that we're going to find out. And someone has to run it. Someone has to keep it functioning as part of the Shadowlands. Because the thing, these 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 realms we're going to in the Shadowlands are called royal realms or ruling realms. They're not all of the Shadowlands. There's a lot of the Shadowlands. Like one of the, Bronze Sandy's realm, I can't say realm today, sorry, is its own part of the Shadowlands. We're not going to get it as a separate realm, we're going to get it as a dungeon. But it is a realm. It is a world of its own, just like Pelia's realm was. Just like all these realms we're going to. There are others. And we're not going to see all of them. We're just going to see these really important ones because they're the ones that, if you think of this, we keep talking about the machinery of death. I think another way to, to think about it would be more specific would be the orrery of death. Imagine if like you have this very complex series of levers and pulleys and gears that keeps this whole thing spinning. You can't just rip out a chunk of it and continue for, on with it as if you, you know, now it, it'll work fine now that we pulled that part out. No, the maw needs to be there. If the maw needs to be there, then the maw has a function. If the maw has a function, that function must be, you know, resumed. And someone's going to have to be in charge of it. We know that Going back as, as far as when Bolvar put on the Helm of Domination, he said someone must be the Jailer of the Damned. And I have been thinking about that ever since we found out that the guy who's in charge of the Maw is named the Jailer. Yep. And I have been thinking about the fact that the Lich King, in a lot of ways, the, the Jailer's role is supposed to be keeping the spirits of the Damned in the Maw. And yet, what is the Lich King effectively doing? What did he do from the beginning? If you go back to the first Lich King, he's pulling the spirits of the damned into bodies. He's making undead. He's like an exact inversion of the Jailer. And if you look at what happens on top of Ice Crown when that helmet is destroyed, and that helmet gives you power even in the Shadowlands. When you have the pieces of the Helm of Domination, because you do, when you go into the Maw, you have the pieces of the Helm of Domination on you. When you do it, you can use that power to dominate even the Jailer's servants. These are direct servants of the Jailer, and you can command them with this Helm. You have to beat them down, because it's World of Warcraft, and nothing ever just works. You always have to punch things until his health bar goes to 30. But... If this helmet can do this, and we've already know that the helmet is made somewhere in the Maw. It's made at the Forge of... Do was it the Forge of Domination or the Forge of Damnation? I can't remember which. I can't remember. But it's it, the Forge is in the Maw, and it's related to the Jailer. It's related to Torghast. That, it's probably the same Forge that they're using to t literally put souls on it and hammer them into items. Which is like, oh god, that's creepy. But... And also very Wraith the Oblivion, by the way. Good job there, guys. Uh, it, it just makes me think, like, you know, at the end of this, Bolvar is going to be the one to step up and take the job. And in a way, it's not like 
I, I think Liz was talking to us last night. She's like, what about that whole thing about there must always be a Lich King? It's like being the jailer is like being the super Lich King. It's it's like being the Lich King on on like cosmic levels. It's it's the difference between you know Norrin Rad's a really cool guy and the Silver Surfer is a cosmic force who you know patrols the universe and does whatever he feels like. Being the jailer is like being the Lich King on steroids. So he will be the Lich King again. He'll just be the Lich King ruling over the Maw. And that that to me is something that might happen. And I do think that he might have been not necessarily I don't think that that's where he wants to go necessarily I don't think that that's what he set himself to to become I just think that he may have been looking in because he Bolvar even after the helmet's destroyed Bolvar's the one who sends you to the mall he knows where it is he knows how to send you there he is not surprised by that giant hole in the sky he knows exactly where that is going and he has knowledge of what happens on the other side he is not like he doesn't have a hundred percent knowledge, but he has seen things. He has been able to see things through the helm of domination. And I think that that means that the, the helm of domination and the Lich King were part of a play by the, the by the jailer the whole, this whole time. And I think we've kind of hinted at that before. Um, so I'm going to shut up and let you talk about it. Cause I know you have talked about that before. I mean, you're not really saying anything that we haven't really gone over or stuff that I've said already. Like I, I I made this the statement a long time ago, and I think that it, it plays in here that the helm of domination I think is maybe a soul forged item or a soul linked item to the jailer in some capacity. It's why it has the power over uh, souls the way it does. How it's able to shove souls into things because don't forget that's what the Lich King does a lot of the time is take a soul out of something and sometimes put it into something else. Uh, I mean, yeah, Nerzul did it, and yeah, um, why can't I think of his name now? Uh, Taron Gorfine did it, but it's a different thing. Like, he's reanimating corpses with souls, right? That's what the Lich King originally did. That was the Curse of Undeath. That's what the Scourge was doing. Uh, and you see the twisting of forms, and if you look at it, like, most of the things that served the Lich King were essentially just reformed vessels, and what is the jailer doing? The jailer is essentially taking those souls, like you just said, turning them into weapons, shoving them into uh, these these robotic weapons almost, and not actually doing whatever his function is. But I didn't know about the fact that you go into the mall with those pieces and that you can dominate uh, some of the... Uh, constructs or dominate the constructs of the jailer, and it just well, lets it's you... not just constructs. It's straight up when you use the, the helm servants, of domination. Right. It's it's the first thing you use it on are various like wraith spirits that are just floating around. They're too disjointed to help you. So you find one that is literally like a couple, like half a dozen of souls jammed together into one wraithy form, and you dominate that. And again, you dominate it with the helm of domination fragments. It still has the power to command the dead. It just straight up commands them. And the the Death Knights can straight up use it to torture spirits into obeying them. Like, they have that power, even in the Shadowlands, even in the Maw. Yeah, which I think further lends credence to the fact that I think... 
I think Bolvar was linked as the Lich King to the Jailer, or at least in part, and was able to see into what was going on. And I think, like you said, it wasn't what he originally signed up for. Uh, I don't think he signed up to, to put on the helm of the Lich King thinking there's going to be something bigger that I'm eventually going to need to either fight or take the place of. No, but after it's been several years at this point since he's put on the helm, uh, and for a lot of that time, he wasn't really doing anything. Like we talk about his reawakening in Legion. Yeah, but the interim, the time in between, we don't know what was happening yet. We don't know what he saw, what he learned, what he was able to do. And we talk about this a lot. Bolvar is, is unique compared to the others that wore the mantle of the Lich King because his perspective was different. His perspective wasn't a nobleman who people serve because of their name and, st and status. It wasn't, I'm a chieftain of the, you know, this horde that, you know, we're going to, we're on a dying world and we're going to go take over another one uh, while being slaves to this de demonic power. No, he was a guy who was well, a general who okay, fought. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, I, I'm not disputing what you think about Arthas, but we have to look at Nerzul very carefully because Nerzul was a shaman. Yep. And shaman are effed in the heads. Like, shaman have a completely different perspective, especially orc shaman. Yeah. And especially, keep in mind, Nerzul wasn't just any orc shaman. He was the elder shaman. Or shaman from other tribes would come to Nerzul for his wisdom. Before he was he was led astray by Kil'jaeden. And keep in mind, Kil'jaeden, that's what Kil'jaeden does. And I also think that that's a really interesting thing to look at here because the Helm of Domination, Kil'jaeden is the one that put Ner'zhul in the thing in the first place. Mm -hmm. After he spent an awful lot of time torturing the guy. Did Kil'jaeden have a deal with the Jailer? Or did he deceive the Jailer? Think about this. I don't think that he deceived the Jailer because... Everything that's been going on so far seems to have been exactly what the, the Jailer was counting on happening. The Jailer definitely seems to be a kind of figure who does these kind of games with people and plays he plays things out. And I, I find myself thinking about it more and more. The Lich King's helmet. Kil'jaeden at one point, after he'd made the Lich, the Lich King, we never got a reason to why Kil'jaeden didn't confront him himself. Remember that. Nerzul went rogue. He he created Arthas, and he went rogue from the Legion. He even worked against the Legion. And Kil'jaeden's response to this wasn't to go attack him himself. Mm -hmm. And it's not like Kil'jaeden is shy about this. Kil'jaeden directly attacked Azeroth on two on two instances. He he tried to come through the Sunwell, and then when you are in the basement of the Tomb of Sargeras, he's right there, saying that the tomb is their prize, that they're going to use it to invade Azeroth. He's right there. He is not hiding from you. So why didn't he go attack the Lich King? Why couldn't he? Yeah. Or if he could, why didn't he? Now, Because I think Kil'jaeden had started to realize Kil'jaeden's really good at knowing when someone's lying to him. When, when, when uh, Illidan lied to him, he knew he was doing it. So if there's a being that could lie to Kil'jaeden through omission or otherwise... Clearly, Kil'jaeden did not want to confront him. Kil'jaeden did not want to make this a fight between himself and the Lich King. Obviously, the Lich King can be beaten in a fight. Yep, we saw it. So, so why didn't he want to do it? Because he didn't want 
the you know the reason there must always be a Lich King, which is that thing that's been brought up a hundred times, isn't because the Lich King himself has any inherent value or power that would make it impossible to replace him. It's that the destruction of the Lich King allows this series of events to occur. Mm-hmm. Once you've got the Helm of Domination in our world, you want that thing intact. You don't want it broken. Because once it breaks, that happens. And I think that there's a, a lot... Kil'jaeden doesn't want the Jailer to come through to our world. Which the Jailer very much seems to be... Very much wants that to happen. The Jailer wants that hole there. He wants that opening there. We don't. Kil'jaeden didn't. So yeah, there's... And, and that's what the other thing you gotta understand about the Legion, too. Like, uh, while the Legion was not exactly, uh, you know, your friendly neighborhood, uh, you know, superhero... They didn't want the universe to be overrun by these extra-dimensional creatures. That wasn't how they started. That wasn't their original purpose. Their original purpose was technically to save the universe, was to save existence. They were just going about it a completely, you know, a way that was uh, anathemic. <laughs> it was basically opposite to our existence, right? So... But they want, they didn't want everything to come tumbling down. That wasn't their goal. They wanted to burn things to an ash, rebuild, and seal the holes. So, yeah, Kil'jaeden didn't, he knew, if he knew this thing was there, he didn't want it to, to come into this world. But now we go back to, you know, Bolvar, he's had time. He's had time maybe to understand a little bit more about what that threat is. And the point that I was trying to make is Bolvar's threat assessment is also beyond anybody else that's worn that helm so far. So I don't know if Arthas would have maybe been able to see the threat for what it was. You know, it's interesting. He combines... Nerzul was a visionary. He was. And he was a leader of his people in a way that was less of a... It was less of an inherited position and more, I'm here because I'm good at this specific thing. But he also was a failure as a leader. He didn't see Kil'jaeden coming. He didn't understand what was going on. He led his people astray. So that's that's Nerzul as, as a leader. That's his perspective. Arthas, again, starts off as somebody who's, who's going to inherit because he is the prince. He is, I don't want to say a good-hearted person because that makes it sound kind of dumb, but he, he was a person who wanted to, he wanted to do the right thing for his people. He wanted to lead them effectively. He wanted to rule them well. He, 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 he took it seriously. He joined the Silver Hand because he, you know, he had that drive, and he he knew from an early age that he wasn't the greatest fighter, or the the best, you know, he wasn't the the the, the most cunning tactician. He knew that because he was friends with Varian, and Varian was both a little older than he was, and just straight up a better fighter than he was ever going to be. Arthas knew I'm never going to be that guy, mm-hmm. so. He tried to be, you know, by joining the Silver Hand, he was effectively trying to, like, say, okay, I need help to do this. I need, you know, an outside force to help guide me. And you see what happened when he was put in a position where he, you know, all the people that he was expecting to help him turned from him because they couldn't accept what he was doing. He could never bend from that path. He believed himself to be right and couldn't accept that he wasn't. In a very real way, both of them had blind spots based on their perception of themselves. 
you know, killed, you know, Nerzel knew he'd been tricked. He knew he'd been lied to, and it made him suspicious and bitter. Uh, Arthas was trying so desperately to justify what he was doing to prove to himself that he was right, that he couldn't see it another way. Bolvar went into this thing on purpose. You know, Arthas didn't really understand what was happening. By the time Arthas put that helmet on his head, his soul had been blasted out of his body by, by, uh, Frostmourne. He, he was not in control of himself anymore. But Bolvar chose it. Mm-hmm. And, he and, chose it knowingly. And I, I don't... Someone said something in effect of, you know, I never thought of Bolvar as this 3D chess type playing Machiavellian genius. I don't think he's like that either. I think Bolvar is a straightforward tactician. Mm-hmm. In a way, Sylvanas is actually the much more strategic of the two of them. Sylvanas comes up with a strategy. She comes up with a big plan. Bolvar is the kind of person who, when presented with a big plan, can figure out how to ruin it in small increments. You have generals that sit down and come up with an entire war plan. Then you've got generals who like lead troops and tell them, okay, this is our objective. This is what we're going to do. When presented with, with the unknown, those people explore it. And that's what I think is happening here. I think that this was a gambit, yes, but I think it was a gambit of exploration. The only way to get over to the to the Shadowlands to see what's going on is to actually let Sylvanas do what she wanted to do. It's the only way that you actually have a path there. She could go back and forth. You have to be able to match that. As long you know, because the way it was right there before the, the portal was opened, she was getting her orders from the time that she died and went over the the, the jailer contacted her. He was capable of communicating so she could talk to him. And that's something that they couldn't counter. They couldn't, you know, there was no way to deal with it until she successfully opened the portal. So that's what I think he did. That's what I think he was going Uh, for. I don't think it's necessarily I'm 10 steps ahead of everybody. I think it's well in order to even deal with this threat. We have to let them make the first move. And and that's what and that's what I I was going to that same exact place right that's what I mean by his threat assessment like he again like I agree with you I don't think Bolvar is ten steps ahead of everybody else far from it I think I think he's just really good at being a general he's really good at reading the situation for what it's worth and like I said he, if he sees that that in particular right where Sylvanas is able to communicate back and forth and we've even if we we take it about like well how would he know well we're if you're a death knight and you're the champion you've gone back and you've talked with him at this point at least once or twice you've talked with people that will talk to him you know whether it's you know Morgrain or any of the others any of the the four horsemen if you take that into consideration you've dealt with Helia you've dealt with the whole Sylvanas thing, potentially, uh, in Helia's realm. You've seen all these signs. You've reported it to him. He has the ability to read what that means. And I agree. I don't think that this is, you know, him planning 10 steps ahead. I think this is him going, this is what we have to do in order to deal with this, in order to bring this to a close, in order to keep Azeroth safe, in order to keep my friends, my family, my people safe. This is what we have to do. Like people have been pointing out, you know, Sylvanas just shows up at the top of the uh, of Ice Crown. How did she get there? 
That's a very good question. There's there when we go through there at any point in time, uh, even if you're doing like the um, when I was doing the mage thing, when you're doing Ebon Chill and you go to Ice Crown, there's still an army. There's a big army and it is not friendly to you. And there are tons of souls that he's activating to stand in your way to see if you're worthy. But they're not easy fights. And we're super, super powerful. If she's going into Ice Crown and making her way to that top again, it stands to reason either she's got more juice than we know, or he pulled forces back to let her get to that point. And that's what I've been leaning towards since we saw the cinematic is there were no bodies up there. There was no uh, army being defeated or, or sea of, of death knights laying down their lives to protect the Lich King. It was just the two of them. This is planned. This was planned. Now, at the end of this, when everything is said and done, and this is something that Matt and I, we don't want to be right, but I have a feeling we might be, is when everything is done, that maw needs to function. And Bolvar's already taken up the mantle of Jailer of the Damned once. I think it stands to reason that he would take that mantle up if given the opportunity because it's the right thing to do for him in his brain and it neutralizes the threat because if he can do the job the right way this doesn't happen again and I think that's where all this sort of is going to wind up coming to a head is we learn that maybe not Immediately, he expected to take over that place, but probably pretty soon into Shadowlands, once we understand more of what's going on, that he's already made up his mind. But who knows? That I, we could be completely wrong. We could get a complete curveball, and that could not happen. Who knows? Maybe there doesn't always have to be a jailer. No idea. But we'll find out in the future relatively soon. Uh, anything else to add, Matt? No, I think we pretty much covered everything that we've talked about before all right well thank you everybody for all those questions uh blizzard watch is made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash blizzard watch your continued support means this podcast site and community is able to thrive and grow blizzard watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like your early access to the podcast a better chance at having your question answered on our podcast or the queue and an ads free site experience if you do have questions for the podcast uh be sure to send them to us on our discord channels uh you can find them there we're always checking them for, for questions from you folks. We love having them there. And if you want, you can also send them to podcast at blizzardwatch.com. Uh, we will get them from there as well. Just make sure you, and if you want to make me, if you want to make me sputter like an incoherent drunkard for a solid three minutes, ask me about relative power levels of characters and lore, because wow, apparently that does it. <laughs> I was like, what am I doing? I, I sound like I'm drunk. I have not been drinking. I haven't had a drink since like 2002. So what is happening? You were drunk oh, on power. What power? The power to not be able to talk. <laughs> but, regard power. but regardless, I want to thank everybody for the continued support, and we will see you next week. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.